As we come to the Word of God this morning, you know, I, I'm reminded of what we studied yesterday in men's group. We're going through uh, John 13 to 17. Yesterday, we spent the morning in John 17, which is, um, which is the, the entire chapter is a prayer from Jesus. And uh, one thing that uh, was drawn out of that, one thing that we talked about was spent some time on was, probably not enough time, but some time on was John 17, verse 17, where Jesus prays, Father, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. And that's my prayer this morning, uh, for this time, is that we would be sanctified in the truth, uh, the truth of God's word. To be sanctified means to be set apart for a holy purpose, to be transformed, to be more like Christ. And that's my prayer this morning, is that we would be sanctified in the truth of God's word, um, so I've been in, in a series. Reed and I, if you've been with us the last oh, 12 weeks or so, we've been he when he teaches, he's been kind of doing a series of his own, and same with me. And I've been teaching on a series that I've entitled "Foundational Truths That Transform." And I realize uh, that there are many, many, many more subjects that uh, that could be and perhaps should be approached. But I'm gonna I'm gonna conclude the series this morning. But in the future, I might come back from time to time and add some things to this because I realize there's, there's other things that I want to teach on. Um, but we're going to conclude it this morning for the time being. And we're going to be going on to, uh, to, to talk about some subjects that are found in the book of Proverbs in two weeks. So two weeks from now, we're going to be, uh, be embarking on a journey through part of pro- parts of Proverbs. We're going to take six or eight weeks because... Um, James 1 says, if anyone lacks wisdom, and everyone raise their hands, right? Uh, let them ask God who gives. And so we're going to seek God's wisdom from, uh, from some of the wisdom literature and scripture. Um, so this morning, we're going to conclude the series on tra- uh, foundational truths that transform. And we're looking at a passage. I actually taught this two weeks ago in Mozambique uh, at a church that I was asked to preach at. And, but I'm going to take a bit of a different approach this morning uh, about midweek, thir- uh, Wednesday, Thursday, I just saw some, some things that were um, deeply impacting. I trust it will be for you as well. This text exalts Jesus Christ as our substitute and our shepherd. It lifts Jesus up as our substitute and shepherd. And when we know him as our substitute and shepherd, it brings deep healing for our souls. Okay? Let me say that again. This text exalts Jesus Christ as our substitute and shepherd, and when we know Christ as our substitute and shepherd, it brings deep healing to our souls. Right in the middle of the passage, and I'm going to kind of jump into this more later, but right in the middle of the passage, the last phrase of verse 24 says, by his wounds, you have been healed. So, Jesus is our substitute. So, let's just dive right in, okay? Jesus is our substitute. Verse 24 says this. This is so important we understand this truth. Verse 24 says, He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. Jesus is our substitute. Now, we all understand I think, the meaning of the word substitute, okay? When I was in school, sometimes I would have a substitute teacher, 
One time, to my horror, it was my mother that, you know, she substituted for my regular teacher, okay? She kicked one of my friends out of class, too. It was really bad, but I digress. Um, so substitute, right? One who takes the place of another. In sports, when a substitute comes in that, to take the place of a starter because he needs a break, right? He takes the place of another. We understand this, uh, this idea, Well, this is the glorious truth we see in this passage, that Jesus Christ is our substitute. He himself bore our sins. Now, the the, the two words, he himself, we don't usually talk like that. You don't hear people say that very often, but it's this emphatic pronoun that's really important. It means Jesus Christ himself, God himself, God in the flesh himself did it, bore our sins. God didn't send somebody else on an errand for him. He himself did it. Nobody pushed God into it. Nobody forced God's hand. He did it voluntarily. And this is where there can be some confusion in this idea of Jesus as the substitutionary atoning sacrifice for our sins. God the Father sent him And Jesus willingly came. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. We hear this echoed throughout the New Testament. Jesus, in I believe it's Matthew 20, said of his own mission, he said, I came not to be served, but to serve and give my life as a ransom for many. Uh, the, The Apostle Paul, speaking of Christ, he says, Jesus loved me and gave himself for me. You hear that language of substitution. Christ gave his life as a ransom for many. He loved me. He gave himself for me. Jesus himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. Nobody outside the Trinity forced God's hand. Jesus is the Lamb of God. God himself, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now, the clear implication of this text is that on the cross, there's a sort of exchange that takes place. You see that in the expression, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. He bore our sins. He didn't die for his own sins. It wasn't a mistake. Uh, We see certainly there was injustice that took place in Jesus being tried before the high priest and being carried off to be crucified, but it was according to the Father's predestined plan and purpose. He bore our sins in his body on the tree. He took the place of sinners. He took the place of sinful man. One theologian, and I believe it was Karl Barth, I couldn't find the reference tied to him, but I I think it was him, suggested that the most important word in the New Testament is the word that's translated, it's the Greek word huper, it's translated for or on behalf of, because it connects us with Christ as our substitute. He died on behalf of his people. He died in the place of his people. He took our place. Leon Leon Morris was a New Testament theologian who's since passed away, but he said the following, redemption is substitutionary, for it means that Christ paid the price that we could not pay. He paid it in our stead, and we go free. 
Listen, he paid it for us and we go free. He took our place. This is such a central truth, so so central to the gospel, that without this understanding, we will invariably have a faulty foundation. We will do something else. We will, we, will, um, we will tend to sentimentalize the gospel. It's just a love story. It's just a love story. God just showing his great love for us. Or we will primarily orient our lives around, around what we can do for God. Now, these two things are important. The gospel does reveal the massive love that God has for us. And of course, it's important that we work out our salvation with fear and trembling. I've spent the last three times teaching on that what we do in response to God's grace for us. But these things must be built on the foundation of what Christ has done as our substitute redeemer on our behalf. Now, we need to know this. So when you leave today, I want you to think, okay, Jesus, my substitute, okay? I want that that language in your mind and heart and Jesus as our shepherd. Peter reiterates this truth in the next chapter in 1 Peter 3.18 when he says, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. Be made dead in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. Do you hear the language of substitution there? He, right, Christ suffered once for sins, the righteous one, that's Christ, died for unrighteous people, that would be you and me. And why did he do it? In order to bring us to God, in order to reconcile us to God the Father. He bore our sins in his body on the tree. Now the word bore here means to carry a massive, heavy weight. Okay? The phrase of Jesus bearing our sins means that he carried the great weight, massive weight of our sins. And this This phrase isn't, we don't see it very often in the New Testament, this idea of Jesus bearing sins. Actually, only two places. Here in 1 Peter 2, and then also in Hebrews chapter 9, verse 28, which says this. So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time not to deal with sin, because he's already done that once, right? But to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. For Jesus to bear our sins means that in some real way, he has actually taken them away. He's taken them away. He's removed them. By his one sacrifice, our sins have been removed forever. They've been plunged into the bottomless and shoreless sea. They're remembered no more. They're removed as far as the east is from the west. If he actually bore our sins in his body on the tree, then that means in a profound way you and I don't bear them anymore. No matter how deep and dark your sinful past is, you do not bear them anymore. There is a ceremony that took place on the Day of Atonement under the Old Testament sacrificial system where... Uh, when it was instituted, it would be Aaron, but the high priest and generations that followed, they would lay their hands on a scapegoat, symbolically transferring the sins of the people to the scapegoat, and the scapegoat would be led out into the wilderness to carry the sins away and make atonement. 
Of course, this clearly points to Christ. It's a type and shadow of what Christ would do. Our sins were transferred to him, and he took them away. Except, here's the deal, he did it once for all. On the Day of Atonement, they would practice these rituals year after year after year, and these ceremonies could never actually take away sin. But Christ, by his one sacrifice, his one offering, has taken away our sin. I love how it says, he himself bore our sins. It doesn't say he bears our sins, like he still does. He bore them once for all. And so we sing that glorious chorus, or not chorus, verse from, it is well with my soul. You know these words? My sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, not a part of them, but the whole is nailed to the cross and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, O my soul. In the Old Testament, to bear sins also meant to suffer punishment. This is another important aspect to Jesus as our substitute. If the people of Israel sinned and bore their sins, they would be punished for their sins. And in the end, if we bear our own sins, listen, if we bear our own sins in the end, we will be punished for our sins by a righteous and holy God. But that's what the Lord Jesus Christ has accomplished for all who trust him. He not only was our substitute in the sense that he bore our sins, but he has also borne our guilt and condemnation or the punishment our sins deserve. It's significant that Peter uses the word tree here. In the Old Testament, it was known that someone who was hanged on a tree was under God's curse. Peter says he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. It literally means on, in the, on the wood, but it's speaking about a tree. Jesus bore our sins in his body on the tree. Deuteronomy 21 testifies that the man hanged on a tree is cursed by God. And Paul quotes that very text in Galatians 3.13 when he says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. You hear that language of substitution. He became a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. I think this helps us to understand the context, or give context, I should say, to the agony that Jesus experienced in the Garden of Gethsemane. It's interesting, when you read accounts of, if you've ever read, read like the Fox's Book of Martyrs, <clears throat> small pieces at a time, right? It's hard to read stuff like that. But you read some of the testimonies in Fox's Book of Martyr, Martyrs and you, you hear these men and women dying excruciatingly painful deaths with great courage. And then you go to the Garden of Gethsemane and you see Jesus in agony, sweating drops of blood. And he, he, he comes to the Father and he says, Father... Is there any way this cup can pass for me? The cup being what he needed to drink, what he needed to go through. And he said, nevertheless, your will be done, not mine. What was the cup? It was not the pain, the physical pain of being crucified. That was not the cup. It was not the humiliation of being crucified and dying a sinner's death, or excuse me, a criminal's death. 
the cup that Jesus had to drink was death and curse. It was the wrath of God against sin. It was to be forsaken by his father on the cross, which is why he cried out on the cross, from the cross, quoting Psalm 23, my, 22, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's what Jesus suffered on the cross. There's an old hymn. I've never sung it. I don't know how it goes, but I've always liked these words. Christ, what burdens bowed thy head? It says this. Death and curse were in that cup. O Christ, t'was full for thee. But thou hast drank the last dark drop. Tis empty now for me. That bitter cup, love, drank it up. Now blessings drop for me. As our substitute, Jesus bore our sins, drank the cup that justly was owed to us so that we can go free. The implications are enormous. If Christ bore our sins in his body on the tree, became a curse for us, then those who are in Christ, listen, no longer bear their own sins and there is no longer wrath and judgment for you because Christ took it for you. I love the scene. If you've ever read the book of Pilgrim's Progress, I love the scene where Christian, the protagonist, the main character, he has, so he's, he's been carrying, ever since he left the city of destruction, his home city, he's been carrying this burden on his back. Burden representing or symbolizing sin and guilt and condemnation because of sin. He's carrying this burden. And he come, there's this beautiful scene. He comes to this hill where there's this cross. And he falls on his knees, right? He has, tears start coming down his eyes. He's not sure why. He falls to his knees at the cross. The burden begins to loosen from his back. It falls off his back. It rolls down the hill. It rolls into a tomb. The tomb is closed. And the burden is never seen again. That is the glory of Christ, our substitute. He took our sins away. And he's taken the curse for us. He bore our sins, paid the price we could not pay, and we go free. Now notice the next phrase in verse 24. That we might die to sin and live to righteousness. What an amazing statement. For Peter, this is central. This is central to the purpose for which Christ bore our sins on the tree. Not so that we could experience God's love, although we certainly do. Not so that we might have peace, although we certainly do have peace because of the cross. Not so that we can go to heaven someday, although we certainly will. But for Peter, the central purpose for which Christ bore our sins in his body on the tree is that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. You see that? The word that speaks of purpose. That we might die to sin and live to righteousness. Die to sin, that we might die to sin. This, of course, doesn't mean that we don't battle against sin or temptation. We do, and at times, temptation and sin seems really strong. But through the cross and our union with Christ, the enslaving power of sin 
has been broken. We are no longer slaves to sin. We are dead to sin. And now, we're given a new life and a new inclination toward righteousness. Of course, this points to our being united to Christ by faith. Through faith, we're united to Christ in His death and His resurrection. So the kids in class are learning about Lord's Supper and baptism, and we believe in believer's baptism. And baptism is a symbol, a picture, an outward dramatization of our union with Jesus. The, the person being baptized goes down into the water in their union with Christ. They're united to him in his death, dead to sin. And they're united to him in his resurrection, alive to righteousness. Paul uses this language in Romans 6, verse, verses 10 to 14, where he says, For the death that Christ died, he died once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passion. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who've been brought from death to life, and your members to God, your hands, your feet, your eyes, your ears, to God as instruments for righteousness. Dead to sin, alive to righteousness. Our great substitute redeemer took our place on the cross, paid the price we could not pay, bearing our sin, guilt, and condemnation in order that the power of sin might be broken and we might live new lives to God in righteousness. What a Savior we have. We ought to glory in the Savior. Not just in a reserved way, say, yes, he's, he's pretty cool, but we ought to say, he's amazing. No wonder why Paul said, far be it for me to boast except in the cross. We boast about all kinds of things. And I'm not saying it's all bad, but our chief boast ought to be Christ and the cross. Jesus is our substitute. But then Peter goes on to say that he's also our shepherd. Look at verse 25. For you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. You were straying like sheep, now you've returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Jesus is not only our substitute because of what he's done in the past, he's also our shepherd now and will be forever. The first part of this verse is taken directly from Isaiah 53. Actually, much of this, these two verses is, but here's what Isaiah 53, 6 says. All we like sheep have gone astray, we have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid upon him the iniquity of us all. Jesus had to bear our sins in order to be our shepherd. Let me say that again. Jesus had to bear our sins in order to be our shepherd. We were like sheep going astray, going our own way. Maybe there's some here today. That's you. Jesus, the good shepherd, says, come unto me. 
Jesus needed to die and bear our sins to be our shepherd. This is what the Father commissioned him to do in John 10. Right after it says the thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy, but I have come that you may have life and have it abundantly, here's what Jesus says. I'm the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. A few verses later in verse 14, Jesus said again, I'm the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. Notice the, the order there. I know my own and they know me. It's most important that he knows us. And we know him because we can only know him if he really knows us in that intimate, saving way. A couple of verses later in verse 16 of John 10, Jesus said again, and I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. Listen, notice, they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. So what does the shepherd do? He lays his life down for the sheep. He knows them. He makes sure that they know him. He gathers the sheep to himself. He leads them. He guards them. He guides them. He protects them. And he gives them and leads them to eternal life. Listen to Revelation 7.17. For the Lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd and he will guide them to the to springs of living water and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. The word here returned, for you were straying like sheep, but you have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. That word refers, it means to, <coughs> excuse me, it means to, to turn toward, to turn away from something and turn toward. Of course, this refers to repentant faith, repentance and faith. You and I were straying like sheep, but have now turned toward, we've now turned back to the shepherd and overseer of our souls. <coughs> Sorry, that was loud. The sheep who have returned to the shepherd. Now listen, sheep in the spiritual sense that return to the good shepherd, what do they do? They listen to his voice. They hear him. They listen to the shepherd's voice. They follow the shepherd's lead. They submit to the shepherd's commands. They stay in the shepherd's protection. Christ is the shepherd of our souls. Life is hard. We are called to be courageous, adventurous in the kingdom, and even take risks, knowing that the shepherd of our souls will keep us and lead us home in the end. Psalm 23, right? King David wrote Psalm 23. We, I bet you most of you know at least parts of it. Psalm 23 sums it up pretty good, right? Life is hard, but we have a great shepherd. We have enemies, but we have a great shepherd. We go through the valley of the shadow of death, but we have an awesome shepherd. Right? The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures, leads me beside still waters, restores my soul. All that sounds so great. Right? He nourishes us, he cares for us, he feeds us. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his namesake. The, the good shepherd leads us on the right path. 
right? To turn away from sin and walk in righteousness. He does this for his own namesake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. Notice it doesn't say if I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. Even though I do, I will fear no evil for you are with me. The good shepherd's with us. His rod and his staff, right? One for protection from enemies, from, from animals, right? Wolves and bears and so forth. The other to keep the sheep from falling into a hole or something, I suppose. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. Life is full of enemies, but we have a great shepherd. You anoint my head with oil, my cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy will pursue me all the days of my life. We sang it earlier. Your goodness is running after me. That's, that's literally what it means. Your goodness and mercy pursue me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Do you sense your need for a shepherd like this? This is who Christ is. He is the good shepherd of our souls. Now, there's a phrase in the middle of our passage that I overlooked. I alluded to it earlier, but I overlooked it and I actually did it on purpose. And the reason is because that one phrase, I think, is connected very intimately with both of these truths we've looked at. Christ our substitute, Christ as our shepherd. The last phrase of verse 24 says, by his wounds. Some say we have been healed, some say you have been healed. By his wounds, you have been healed. Between the two great truths of Jesus being our, our substitute, bearing our sins and guilt and condemnation, and Jesus being our shepherd, is this glorious statement, by his wounds, you have been healed. I think this points us to the kind of deep healing that we all actually need. Now, we, we, we uh, all think we know our needs, and sometimes we can put our finger on our needs. This is the deep healing that we need. There's a lot of talk about brokenness in the world. There's a lot of talk about healing and therapy and this and that sort of thing. And even in a Christian context, unfortunately, it often doesn't go near deep enough. We do need healing, every one of us. Right? We need healing more important than the ailments of our physical bodies though Christ cares about that. I mean, think about it. Christ cares so much about our physical bodies that the, the culmination of our salvation is that we get resurrection bodies. And what did you say? That'll be, that'll be great. Okay, I woke up with an achy back today. I know some of you have way worse things than that you're dealing with, but I'm like, resurrection body, amen. Um, not only that, but, but we need deeper healing than the kind of therapeutic healing of our emotional hurts. We've all been hurt by other people. Jesus offers us a healing deeper than that. And actually, when we receive this healing, it helps us with those, healing, with those hurts as well. We will be forever healed physically and emotionally. I believe that when we're with the Lord forever. The Lord Jesus Christ will do it. But this text seems to put the emphasis on the healing of our souls from the soul-eating disease of sin. And it is soul-eating disease. 
It's like an acid. Look at the connection between the first part of verse 24 and the last phrase. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. The stain of sin is deep and its wasting disease wreaks havoc on the soul. Peter, in the same letter, talks about how sin wages war. Excuse me, the passions of the flesh wage war against our souls. We've all experienced that. Think of the sin of envy and jealousy. Our, our, our societies run through with the sin of envy. So much of the political posturing and this and that and interactions with human beings, there's envy, there's jealousy, there's, and it's, it's raging inside. Proverbs has this one, uh, this one statement. I'm not going to get this exactly right, but it says uh, anger. It, it, says, it, it says basically anger is bad, but who can stand before jealousy? Envy is a wasting, destructive sin. Think of pornography addiction. Same thing, our societies run through with it. It's shocking to know how many, how young boys are being exposed to this often and how many men in particular, not just men, women too, but men in particular are struggling with this. It's the same thing. But what happens when we experience the redeeming work of Christ? The healing begins. It does. Sins are forgiven. They're actually forgiven. He pardons our sins. The conscience is cleansed. There's this amazing statement in the book of Hebrews. It talks about having our conscience cleansed from evil works that we may serve the living God. I remember reading this article one time about the, all this talk about needing therapy and needing to go back into our past and being healed from all these hurts, maybe that we don't even know about, maybe even from the time we were in our mother's womb and all this stuff. And he said, no, we don't need healing like that. We need a cleansed conscience. And that's true. We need our conscience to be cleansed. It comes through Christ. Guilt and condemnation removed. Through Christ, we are known and loved with a perfect, unconquerable love of a gracious and glorious Savior. Listen, who didn't wait for us to get our act together. He bore our sins in his body on the tree. Not only that, because, because when we're united to Christ, we die to sin and live to righteousness, we begin growing in mature, righteous living. All of this brings God's gracious healing to our lives. By his wounds, we are healed. Now, I think it needs to be said, all healing... We know this physical healing for sure, emotional healing, and this, spirit, this deep spiritual healing that's the most important. All of it in this life is partial. When Christ comes again, it'll be complete. But it's real, and we can experience it through Jesus Christ. Now, Notice the last part of verse 24, this phrase, by his wounds you've been healed, and how it connects to verse 25. By his wounds you have been healed. For we, you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd 
and overseer of your souls. Do you see that connection there? The word for there, you could put the word because. He's telling us the reason why we're healed by the wounds of Christ, because you were straying like sheep, but you now have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. What's going on here? The healing here is the most profound of all. It is the healing of a heart that turns in rebellion and runs from Christ. Remember what Isaiah 53 said? All, you, all we like sheep have turned, gone astray. Everyone has turned to his own way. Right? There's a way that seems right to a man. We go our own way. Well, when we are converted, what do we do? We return to the shepherd. We stop going our own way. We return to the shepherd and he nourishes us and he cares for us and he gives us all that we need. We are given a new heart and the new heart manifests itself in straying sheep humbly and gladly coming to the good shepherd. Not going our own way anymore. Now this does not mean we, we are perfect. Okay, we understand that, right? There's still the temptation. There's still at times the drifting, but we, we return to Christ in a decisive way with this new heart. We listen to the shepherd. We follow him. We trust him. We receive his nourishment. We obey him. We receive his care and protection. Now that is healing. That's the kind of healing every soul desperately needs. St. Augustine, uh, he was alive in the uh, fourth century. He, uh, in his book, Confessions, he had this prayer that he prayed to God and he said, Oh God, we were made for you, and our heart, we were made for you, and our hearts are restless until they find rest in you. In other words, we, have, we suffer from this restless soul syndrome until we find rest and healing in the God who made us. Amen? Hudson Taylor, uh, the uh, missionary who started China Inland Mission, he uh, gave a New Year's address on verse 25, 1 Peter 2, 25. And I want to close just with some of his words. Here's what he said. Now listen, because this is addressing all of us. It says, are you, in, are you all enjoying this precious truth? Are we all able to take this passage to ourselves and say, I was a sheep gone astray but I have returned. Can we all feel it is true for ourselves? If there is one or some who cannot do so, the shepherd is really present, though unseen. He is here, ready to receive those who will return now. Come unto me is his word. If there is one who is burdened with sin, listen, he is ready to pardon. Totally. If, if there is one burdened with care, he is present to receive your care. The Lord Jesus is present to take every burden away, to accept every deposit, to fulfill every trust we confide in him. He will be faithful to keep that which we commit to him. We can entrust to him the keeping of our souls, the ordering of our lives, the care of our children, the word to which he has called us. He may, we may trust him to keep us, yes, Whatever we commit to him, he is able to keep. So, if this morning the good shepherd says, come 
to me, to us, what's the only reasonable response? To come to him. To come to him in humble faith and receive and joyfully celebrate that he is our substitute who's taken our sins away and bore in himself not only our sins but our condemnation on the tree and come to him as a shepherd who will care for us and nourish us now and forever. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your um, Holy Spirit here in your word. Thank you for your son, Jesus.